Scripture reading this morning is uh, from the book of 2 Kings again. 2 Kings. Chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. Uh, we pick up at verse 38. We'll read through to verse 44, which is the end of the chapter. And then we jump over chapter 5 and we go to chapter 6 and read verses 1 through 7. I am fully aware that the Spirit of God placed chapter 5 between chapters 4 and 6. And we will get there. Uh, it just made some good sense to me uh, to do these three little stories together in one service. We will come back to the story of Naaman the Syrian, who is cured of his leprosy. That'll be for two weeks from now, Lord willing. But for this morning, chapter 4, 2 Kings chapter 4, at verse 38, and then uh, to the end of that chapter. Listen, this is God's word. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits. Twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servants said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says Yahweh, They shall eat and have some left. And so he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of Yahweh. And then over to chapter 6, verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Well, normally when we begin a conversation with the question, 
what is your problem, we mean it as a kind of challenge, or at least it's taken as a kind of challenge. We invite a rather hostile or at least um, defensive response. What do you mean, what's my problem? What's your problem? But when I ask you this morning, what's your problem? I'm not looking to start a fight. Rather, I'm inviting you to think for just a moment about some of your problems. From some of the major problems you deal with, or some of the minor problems, or whether you have one problem or 99 problems. And if you have one problem or 99 problems, or if they're little problems, or if they're big problems, or if you can't even count them, then this message is for you. All three stories we've read share three features. At the beginning of each story, there's a problem. By the end of the story, there's a a very delightful, happy solution. And at the middle of each story, there's the man of God, Elisha. And so my goal this morning is to encourage you as God's faithful children to remind you that God knows your problems. And there's no problem in all the world, however many there are and however large they are, that are outside the power of God. But there's also no problem too small in any one of your lives that escapes God's gaze or also defies his power. God sees and knows your problems and he will fix them, if not in this life, in the life to come. And he does that through his man, Jesus Christ. So let's revisit these stories, looking first at the problems and then at the solutions and and then at the heart of each story, the man of God. In the first story, there are two problems, or really it's the same problem, but at a macro level and at a micro level. At the macro level, we read in uh, verse 38, there is a famine in the land. This is not the first time in the stories of Elijah and Elisha we hear of a famine. And we understand with everything else going on in uh, the land at this time that there's uh, famines as they are typically, they're signs of God's judgment. The God who causes rain to fall and the sun to shine and the seasons to change, uh, who uh, causes crops to grow and then who protects crops from diseases or from uh, bugs or who guards his people from their enemies who might otherwise come in at the last minute and scoop up the harvest. God cares for his people, but God has also said to his Old Testament covenant people, when there's disobedience, when there's a lack of faithfulness, do not expect good crops. Rather expect drought and famine, the heavens to become like glass, the earth to become like brass. God here is allowing his people to go hungry. It's just a little tiny comment, but it's a reflection of of the state of affairs in the land But then we zoom in for a moment and we find Elisha at Gilgal. And even there, we can pause for a moment and recognize that Gilgal is a significant town in the history of Israel. It's the first place the people of Israel encamped after they crossed the Jordan River, after they entered into the promised land generations before under the leadership of Joshua. 
And it's where the nation had renewed its commitments to its covenant with God. Through a mass circumcision, through the celebration of the Passover, it's where they ate the first produce of the promised land, and they set up a pillar of 12 stones that they'd taken out of the river, a pillar that was intended to be a memorial, and it was intended to provoke questions in subsequent generations. What do these stones mean? And the answer, as the Lord reminded them, was that this pillar was so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Well, after such a spectacular entrance into the land, after all these years of waiting and wandering, God's promises finally coming to fulfillment. And now, generations later, the people of God have forgotten God. They've forgotten that His hand was mighty. They've not been fearing the Lord forever. But here we find in Gilgal a small pocket of faithful few who remain in the land are following the Lord and it's a small band of prophets at a kind of low budget seminary. And they're under the tutelage oversight of Elisha who comes to visit and because he comes to visit they all assemble and Elisha says, bring out the food. He gives instructions to throw on a big pot of stew and And because ingredients are scarce, remember there's a famine, one of the prophets goes out in the field to gather something to throw in the pot, and he finds a wild vine, he harvests the wild gourds, he slices them up, he throws them in the pot. And even this act gives us a little window into how bad things are. You see, from the time of Adam in the garden to the people in the promised land, the earth was to have been cultivated and cared for and ideally it's going to be producing wheat and barley and grapes and olives and instead all the man can find is a a vine he doesn't even recognize but it has enough gourds on it that he fills his lap full and is able to throw them in the big pot and everything is uh, seems fine until the stew gets poured out and people start to dip into it, and the men cry out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. Now I'm reminded of a story here that when I was a child, it happened when I was a child, many of you remember uh, or know that my parents were uh, immigrants from uh, the Netherlands. They came to Canada in 1954, and uh, this is not that long after the war, of course, and my mom as a newly married bride, brought with her all the recipes of the old country. A good number of those recipes, I'm convinced, were prepared or made or designed during the war. And they were intended to be able to fill a lot of bellies with food that was allegedly nutritious. But they had a kind of nostalgic power for my parents and brought us very little joy as children. (laughs) And one day, as we all assembled around the table, it happened one time, just one time, and never again. But one time, we sat around the table. My teenage brother lifted up the the lid of the pot, stuck his nose in, and said, Oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. (laughs) We all did what you just did. We laughed uproariously. Even my father smiled. My mother, not so much. 
This is one of the problems of reading your children Bible stories, I suppose. But you see, our problem, my mother's understanding of our situation was she couldn't imagine how we could not be grateful for that food, given what she had been through. Our problem wasn't solved that easily. We had to eat it, and we've eaten it many times since. But in this case, as these men cry out, we don't know if it's simply because the food tasted terrible, which it undoubtedly did, or if it really was sickness-inducing or life-threatening. Whatever the case, no one wants to eat it. And this precious pot of stew is ruined. It needs to be thrown out. And again, it's not just a waste of food, but it's the loss of a rare and precious potential meal in a time of famine. So for a large group of men in a time of famine, this stew is a problem. Well, the second story has a similar problem. It's a problem also food-related, but some man who is, I think, to be commended in this story comes from a town uh, named after Baal, and that's a problem, but he uh, proves to be a disciple of Yahweh. And it's in a time of famine, uh, he brings as an offering of the first fruits of his crop a little bit to the man of God. You can imagine, I think it's a bit of speculative, but you can imagine the priesthood is in shambles. There's no other way. This man recognizes Elisha and this band of prophets to represent God, and so he brings as an act of worship his first fruits. But again, notice there's an overtone of hunger here because Elisha immediately gives instructions to distribute, uh, to distribute the loaves and the grain to the sons of the prophets so that they might eat. And then we have the problem. We hear Andrew, the disciple of Jesus, saying to Jesus, uh, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves, two fish, but what are they for so many? Here the disciple or the servant of Elisha says, how can I set this before a hundred men? What good is so little food for so many people? It's just not enough to feed so many mouths. And that's a problem. Well, finally, we come to the story of the axe head. The problem in this story is even more interesting because it seems so inconsequential to us. The whole story seems so strange to us. And it causes a good deal of, a good many uh, critics of Scripture and of, of God's great power a great deal of consternation trying to explain it away. But notice this story, too, begins with a, a, this unexpressed glimmer of good news. The living quarters for the sons of the prophets are too small. So they want to go down the road, down to the river, and build a bigger house. And I'd say this is a glimmer of good news, again, not quite expressed here, but it suggests at least an increase in the enrollment at Elisha Theological Seminary. And so Elisha not only grants permission, but when he is asked, he agrees to go along with them. And they travel down the, to the river, they start cutting trees, and the problem is expressed very simply in verse 5, as one of them is felling a log, his axe head falls into the water, and he cries out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. 
Again, this is a strange event, and it's a little difficult for us to insert ourselves into the story to imagine how uh, difficult the set of circumstances really is for this man. We don't, many of us, even own an axe, or much less have to borrow one, or probably in many cases even swung one, although I do remember loaning my axe to a seminary student. We just imagine going down to Home Depot to get a replacement. Uh, Ray Dillard, formerly a professor at Westminster and now uh, with the Lord, compares this really to our borrowing a car. Or picture this, we're, we're too poor to afford a car, but we need one. And a good friend loans us hers and allows us to drive it uh, for a bit, and we're off to uh, an appointment, and we spin out on some ice, and we wrap it around a tree, and we total the car. Without the benefit of insurance, we try to imagine how we might possibly pay to replace that car, a car we couldn't afford in the first place. A man too poor to own his own axe borrows from another, swings the axe, watches the axe head fly through the air. You can almost see this in slow motion. Uh, It splashes into the water. It sinks to the bottom. And all he can think about is a guy named Sir Isaac Newton and the laws of gravity and apples falling from trees. That axe is not coming back. And that is a problem. Three problems, three stories. A crock pot full of bad stew and a hungry crowd. Too few loaves of bread for too many hungry people. And a borrowed axe head at the bottom of a river. Well, notice more briefly the happy solutions to each of the problems. In the first story, Elisha throws a little flour into the pot and the stew is healed. And the story ends with this happy note, and there was no harm in the pot. In the second story, Elisha repeats his instructions to set the food before the large crowd, and he adds to that instruction this little promise, thus says the Lord. And we read, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. And the third story, again, strangely, ends happily. Elisha says, show me the spot, cuts off a stick, throws it into the water at the exact spot where the axe head had made its big splash, and the iron floats. And he tells the man, it's not, it's, that's not the end of the story, he tells the man, take it up. So he reached out. And he took it up. The bad stew was healed and prophets were fed. A few loaves of bread were multiplied to the point of leftovers. And the prophets ate. And an iron axe at the bottom of the river floated to the top so that the man who had borrowed it was not going to be in debt to the man who owned the axe. Three problems, three very happy solutions, and notice at the center of each story stands the man of God. Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. It's, it's kind of like a declaration 
uh, of a problem, but it's also a cry for help. The man who delivers the first fruits of the meager harvest brings them to the man of God who he understands to represent God on earth. And the man of God hears the word of God who tells him not only to spread out the food, but that there will be leftovers. And then the man of God asks to see the spot where the axe fell into the water. And that's where he threw the stick. There's no getting around in each story the significance and the centrality of the man of God in in each story. The man of God, by his presence, uh, by his word, through his actions, solves problems. And if anyone were to ask us, well, why does Jesus perform miracles while he's on earth? And we might answer, well, to prove that he was really and fully and truly God. That's not entirely wrong, but it's not entirely the whole answer. You see, after all, We want to say, who but God can heal the sick or multiply loaves of bread or defy the laws of gravity as we know them by walking on water? And and clearly, Elisha's actions in these three stories amplify his standing in the community. We're going to come to a a passage a a little later uh, where someone is going to ask Who's this Elisha guy? What has he done? And you're going to get a recounting of some of his great deeds. His actions in these stories will amplify his presence and his sense of power as belonging to or being sent by God to these, uh, the school of prophets. They will surely affirm again as they have before the spirit of Elijah is on Elisha. This truly is the man of God. But I think there's a lot more going on here. Because as with Jesus, so with Elisha, these acts are not only intended to affirm their authority as having been sent by God, though they do that. But notice each of the lives of each of the participants in each of these stories are enriched by or because of these miracles. In the middle of a famine, the prophets eat stew, and they eat bread and have leftovers. And a poor seminarian wannabe lumberjack who's on the hook for a new axe is suddenly no longer indebted to the man from whom he had borrowed it. Everyone walks away from these stories saying, my life is better today than it was when it started. The man of God did something good for us. And of course, even in this, the signs Elisha performs here point to a coming fuller redemption of God in Christ, a redemption from all evil, a restoration of God in Christ to a full, whole, rich life. And they're all pictured in the presence of Christ in both his words and in his actions, his deeds, announcing the arrival of the coming of the kingdom of God, and who will accomplish this most supremely and effectively in his death and in his resurrection, defeating sin, destroying Satan. 
And so way back, even here in the book of Kings, we have pictures of the promises of God and his presence with his people. His tender care for his people, even in a time when they might be overwhelmed by their own problems, let alone all the problems of all the world around them. It's one other way to fully, I think, better appreciate what's going on in these three little stories is to remember where we are in the book of Kings. This is a two-part book. And it's a book describing something of the history of the kingdom of Israel that begins as a whole united nation under David and Solomon and ends with the dissolution and distribution of the ten tribes in the north and the exile of the two tribes in the south. And the book of Kings was written, put together, compiled, and and made for a people in exile and returning from exile. How are they going to read these stories? And think about this for another, uh, another angle to this is to remember that the book of Kings follows the lives of kings. But I don't know if you've noticed this, but we're in a significant section in the middle of this two-part book at the really heart of this two-part book where we go from 2 Kings chapter 3 all the way to 2 Kings chapter 8. Apart from chapter 3 in the middle, uh, sorry, from chapter 2 to 8 with 3 being a little bit of a break where there's no mention of any king at all or if a king is mentioned, we do not get his name. You might have noticed it's even in these stories, there's no sense of necessary progression. This happened and then this happened and this happened. These are almost stories taken out of time and they're uh, uh, taken and set apart from the stream of succession of kings in one nation or in the other. And they're elevated as if to say to a subsequent generation, the kings failed you. The priesthood failed you. The Lord did not. He sent his prophets. He gave you his word. He demonstrated his power, his care for you, even when you thought you were the only ones left. And so the spotlight here in in this section of 2 Kings is entirely on the prophets, on Elijah, then Elisha, and on this handful of faithful individuals, a school of the prophets, uh, a poor woman and a rich woman and their little boys. As if a later generation were intended to read this and to recognize that when all hope seems lost, and when the bright lights of the kings and the priests go out, the Lord does not forget his promises. The Lord does not withdraw his presence. And this small band of believers is, in the words of another, a small but steady pilot light. Still flickering, still holding out of a promise of God coming and doing something bigger and better and greater for his people. And for us today, we hear these stories and even though they seem distant from us, we recognize in them little pictures of what Jesus does when he came. And we get to know that for all of our problems, whether there is one or there are 99, whether they're small or large, whether they seem inconsequential to us at the time, whether they're caused by our sin or they're generally to be attributed to the effects of the fall in the world at large, God sees us. He knows us. The God who can cares. 
He cares for his own. He restores life from death. He creates abundance out of deficiency. He demonstrates his power over what we might call the laws of nature because he is the ultimate great creator and lawgiver who is over all things. And he does this, not just because he can, not just as a demonstration of his power, though it is that, but he does this for our good. He does this because he wants to redeem us from the powers of evil, because he wants to restore us and bring us into a full and rich life. What's your problem? Those aren't fighting words. Those are words that invite you today to take stock. And when you're feeling helpless and hopeless, when you find it too easy to throw up your hands in uh, defeat or despair, and say, my problems are large and my problems are many. Never mind the problems going on in Ukraine. And what will my few little crates do to uh, be little drops in a bucket of apparently endless need there? And what do you do when you're overwhelmed by your problems or living in a world overrun by a perpetual procession of intractable problems? You turn to the man of God. There's no problem too big to cause God to turn his eyes as if to say, I can't do that one. But there's no problem too small to escape his gaze as if he were to say, I don't see that one. Nothing will stop him from caring for his own, and that includes you. If you feel like you're alone or a part of a very small faithful remnant, God cares for you. And he will care for you and he will meet your needs in Christ Jesus, both in this life and the life to come. What's your problem? Look to the man of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these delightful stories of problems solved by the man of God. Thank you for our fuller understanding of what Jesus came to do and for our place in it. Lord, for each of those here today who do stop and count and reflect on their problems and who recognize they are many and they are large, we ask for your man, our Savior, to be at work, to provide relief, and to provide the ability to endure and the longing for that life when he comes again, to restore to us the fullness of joy and to give us the overflowing fullness of new life. We ask this in his great, powerful, and precious name, and all God's people say together, amen.